Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. I'm excited to be here because this is a really, really great day to celebrate, like Ryan talked about, the freedom that we have in Jesus. And the Lord gave me a word about this morning that I'm going to talk about at the end of the message. But So I'm excited to share that with all of you. But we are getting into Revelation chapter 8. So we did the first two verses last week and talked about unsealing the four trumpets. It really unseals all seven, but chapter 8 covers four, the first four of the seven. So today we're going to go through the, the entire chapter, all of chapter 8, go through all four of these trumpets. And just as a reminder, because I, I love, as new people are watching online all over the world, just taking a minute to remind everyone that this is the greatest book in the Bible that we are studying. And it is the unveiling of who Jesus is, not just presently, but for all eternity. Who is he really? And what we get to see is the, the process of Jesus rightfully taking his throne from Jerusalem on planet Earth that he died and paid for almost 2,000 years ago now. Um, this is the one, the book about the one in which the world is accountable to, yet seeks independence from. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit at the end, how really the world is clamoring for, as we celebrate Independence Day, they are clamoring for independence from the one whom they are accountable to. And that's the problem that we face, really not just in this nation, but in the world today. So this is the book that culminates all things. It's everything we look forward to. And it's all about redemption. And so we're going to see that as we unpack chapter 8 today. The blessing, we're claiming that every time we get up here to study this. It's chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. To keep it really implies that you had it at some point. So you have to go get it, right? You can't keep something you don't have. And to get it, you have to study it. You've got to read it verse by verse. You've got to dive into it. Then you can keep it and hold on to it. And that's, I'm hoping that is the gift that everyone receives as we go through this book. Okay, it's the only book that gives you an outline. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, after the churches. So we're in that period after the churches from chapter 4, verse 1 until the end. And it details explicitly that is a prophetic book, the words of this prophecy. And we know from Revelation 19, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we have a, a deep, deep calling to unpack this book as we go on. Okay, the supernatural outline, we talked about that a little bit. The four things, just as a reminder, four things put back where they belong in this book. The church will be back in our rightful home, which is heaven. Israel will be back in its rightful home, the land God promised to them in Genesis. Jesus will be on his rightful throne, the throne of David. He's not on his throne yet. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now, waiting 
as the Lord says in Psalms, until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, all evil would be bound and ultimately cast into their rightful home, which is the lake of fire. So pretty neat. We get to see everything put back in order just in this book. So we, are, we went through chapter 7, and then chapter 8, verse 1, is the unsealing of these seven trumpets. Chapter 8 today, we're going to tackle the first four of the seven trumpets and really what's going on here as exponentially we go into this judgment that the Lord has on a Christ-rejecting world. It's going to be, it gets, starts to get very heavy from here. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 1, we're just going to dive into it. And he, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Okay, so this is Jesus taking the scroll. He's unloosed the seventh seal, and that brings on the seven trumpets. And the silence we talked about last week, emulating the silence in Joshua, how the entire book of Joshua models the book of Revelation in advance with the name of Jesus on the very title of the book. And there was silence before they attacked Jericho. So the whole thing, if you, if you missed that last week, go back and listen to the message. But the whole book of Joshua models the book of Revelation, which is amazing. We're still in heaven praising him. And verse 2, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And so these angels are given the authority to go forward and to declare this judgment on the world. They're given that judgment. They don't just take it under their own accord. And that's such an important concept to realize when you are in him, who has the authority? And that is modeled in the book of Job, the best place in the entire Bible where Satan has to ask permission for anything that he does. And if you are a believer, if you are a believer and you are in Jesus, you are not out there on the battlefield alone. You are not just you are not susceptible to the tax of the enemy unless he filters it for you. So you need to keep that in mind. Anything you're challenged with in your life, anything that's attacking you in your life, anything you're facing in your life, God is allowing it if you are in him for a purpose. And the purpose in Job was to, to need out some pride that Job had in his life. And you see that the most all the way at the end of Job in chapter 38 when the Lord starts asking him all of these questions and you get the idea, oh, okay, God had a purpose in this, and it was to continue to shape Job to something greater. So the authority is delegated to them. And just keep that concept, the entire book of Revelation, Jesus is in control. And he is delegating this authority to be unleashed on earth. Okay, and I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Okay, this reminds me of Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, speaking of Jesus. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. This is why we get to be co-heirs with Jesus, because he is heir of all things. So his inheritance is the earth, but we are co-heirs with him. And one of my favorite titles he has for us throughout the entire Bible is his inheritance. You are the inheritance of the Lord, which is amazing when you think about it, because at the very end of the book, when heaven and earth pass away, what is left? You. You are his inheritance. You are what goes from here 
into the next age of a new heaven and a new earth. Pretty amazing. Okay, heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. In the Greek, that's also time domains. So he made time itself. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. We've talked about this a lot, but you know, in Colossians, by him all things consist or are held together. He's upholding it by his word. And in Genesis chapter 1, it's 10 times when God says, and he said, and he said, and he said 10 times. That's why in quantum physics we know there are 10 dimensions and he holds them together because by his mouth, it's literally holding every atom together, the sound waves of it. That's what they've discovered about three years ago. Just amazing. But you get that, that glimpse right here in Hebrews 1 verse 4 and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. See, he's sitting at the right hand of God. He's not on his throne yet. His throne is yet to be established, but it will. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So, see, he's giving the authority to the angels because he is made so much better than the angels. He is a higher rank. Obviously, he's the ultimate rank. And so that's why he can delegate the authority to them. So these are the trumpets of angels, which are vastly different than the trump of God. And we've looked at this repeatedly at New City Church, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's really 15 through 18, but verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. So this is the verse that really encapsulates the entire event of the rapture. And the trump of God. So this is very different than the trumpet that the angels are about to blow. And there's lots of trumpets in the Bible. And you, you would really be blessed to do a word search to go through the Bible and just look at all the times a trumpet shows up on Mount Sinai with Israel. All these different points. Something very pivotal happens every time a trumpet shows up. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. It's the verse all about us at the rapture getting our resurrected body. And the Holy Spirit uses a phrase here, at the last trump, which is why many are led to believe that the rapture occurs sometime around the Feast of Trumpets because it would have a series of trumpets that would blow. And the Holy Spirit may be linking that at that last trump, we fulfill that feast. And nobody's setting dates, but it's just interesting to think about that the Lord has, he has literally fulfilled the first three feasts of Moses with the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits. All of those were fulfilled to the day, and he fulfilled them for us. So that model will likely continue. We know that he fulfills the last three feasts of Moses at his second coming in Revelation 19, when he returns to earth. And then there's that peculiar one in the middle, uh, which is the feast that the only feast that used leavened bread, and it represents the church. Very interesting. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. Okay, so blowing the trumpet before the day of the Lord is really starting. And that's really what we're seeing here 
in Revelation chapter 8. And then Amos 3, verse 6. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done it? So blowing the trumpet linking to people being fearful. We see that all the way back in Amos and speaking of the day of the Lord. So verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Okay, when you go back to Revelation chapter 5, the throne room of the universe, verse 8, And when he had taken the book, he, Jesus, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So in verse 3, with the much incense, that word in the Greek is thymia. I think is how you pronounce it. I'm probably totally butchering that word. But it's the same word as odors back in chapter 5, verse 8. So the odors are the the incense, it's the prayers of the saints. Your prayers, like we looked at in chapter 5, are all sitting before the throne room of the universe, and God has not missed one of them. It's just a matter of when does he answer, and it's always in his timing. So your prayers are there. The golden altar here in heaven is the true altar, and a concept that you need to be familiar with, while the tabernacle was a model of the heavenly reality, the true reality is in heaven. And you see this referenced in Hebrews 8, 5. It's nowhere in the Old Testament, but Hebrews unpacks this for us in chapter 8, verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou shalt make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. See, when he went up to get the Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments, he also got a pattern. He got the blueprints for the tabernacle that they carried in the wilderness all these decades. And it's interesting, we don't really know what happened to the tabernacle, but we do know that it really wasn't God's intent for them to build a temple. And when you study that carefully, he sarcastically asks David, who told you I need a building? He didn't call them to do that. Now, he allows it to happen. My thought is that the, just like Israel, when they're looking around at the other nations around them and they see Saul or they see that they all have a king over them, then they clamor for Saul to be their king. Well, God had a king in mind for them. It was Jesus. He was leading them. He was leading them into battle. And he had a king in mind, David, down the road that he would raise up. But they wanted to be like all the other, like the world. They were looking around them, wanted to be like the world. And so they clamored for a king, and God gave them Saul. Well, the, kind of the same thing with the temple. All these other false gods that the world was worshiping, they had these gorgeous, gigantic, ornate temples, the temple to Diana that you read about in the New Testament, all these different temples. And Israel's sitting there going, hey, our God needs a temple. Well, God did not intend for them to have that temple. He, he wants to set up a temple in the millennium. He talks about it in Ezekiel. But it's interesting when you really study that closely that he allowed it, but he did not call them to do it. And his plan was for that tabernacle to always be their temple of meeting. Because, and we're going to see in a minute why, because the whole thing models Jesus. 
And we see this again in Exodus 40, verse 26. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. See, the golden altar was outside the Holy of Holies, but it was standing there within the tabernacle. And here in chapter 8, verse 3, the angel is coming and he's standing at the altar having a golden censer that was given unto him. Okay, and he places it upon the golden altar in heaven, which the tabernacle was a model of. So we're going to see this. Look at this closely. In John 1, verse 14, Jesus speak. Well, this it's kind of Jesus. He is every word. But the Lord is saying, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek, it literally means tabernacled. And so there's your connection, your, your clue that the Lord is pointing you to something that happened from the Old Testament. The word was made flesh. Jesus was made in the flesh and he tabernacled amongst us. Okay, when you go back, look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. Again, the tabernacle being a copy of the heavenly reality, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So when you go back and you look at the tabernacle as God has pointed us to, what they would do is they would set up these tents on the outside that were all of these bloody goat's skins and porpoise skins and ram skins. And from the outside, it looked like something that you wanted nothing to do with if you were an outsider. It was gruesome. It was all these skins. It looked like a teepee almost. It was built up. It was only until you got inside the tabernacle that you realized the beauty of the tapestry and the relationship that it gave you to the Father. And it was covered in gold, and you had all these fine linens and things, and the artistry of it, it was gorgeous. But that's what links to Isaiah. Speaking of Jesus, the Lord says, he has no form or comeliness that we should desire him. And it's the same thing, it's a link to the tabernacle. It had no form or comeliness that you would desire to go into it. And it's the same thing with our Lord. So. At the tabernacle, there was one way in, and Jesus and John. And John, he claims, he lays claim to every item of the tabernacle. He said, I am the door. Okay, there was one door in. When you got in, there was a brazen altar that you, you had a laver and you would wash with the water. Okay, and he said, I am the living water. And there was, it was for atonement. Okay, and then once you got inside of that, there was a table of showbread within the tent area, and he said, I am the bread of life. Okay, then there was a seven-branch candlestick, and he said, I am the light of the world. And then at the very front before the Holy of Holies, there was the golden altar. Okay, the same one we're seeing in Revelation 8 that the angel is casting this onto. See, the model of all of it wasn't just because the Lord wanted to put them under some type of strict thing and see if they could handle all these sacrifices and things. It was modeling the relationship the angels have in heaven with the Lord. That was the point. It was modeling the same thing. Okay, and then you go in, and there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was acacia wood overlaid with gold. It was the same wood that was the burning bush that, spoke, that Jesus spoke out of the flame to Moses. It likely was acacia wood that they made the helmet of thorns to place on Jesus' head, the same wood. It's not just a crown. In the, in the Greek, it actually implies that it's a helmet. So they would press it down on top of the head. To, so it'd be even more excruciating. 
But the whole thing, the whole tabernacle models our relationship with Jesus. How did you carry it? Well, you had to carry it on these poles with silver sockets. Silver always speaks of blood in the Old Testament. So our relationship with him rested on the, none other than the blood of Jesus itself as they would pick it up. Okay, and, and you see that same model with Judas. Remember, he betrays Jesus for silver, again, making that link as silver representing blood. So the whole thing, if you haven't studied that before, I, I would encourage you to get into it and really break it down and see how everything in the Old Testament links to our Messiah, the King, Jesus himself. So chapter 8, verse 4, And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So when you go back to Exodus, everything that's starting to happen here is also going to model the judgments on Egypt when they start to blow the trumpets. So prepare for that. But the smoke of the incense raising up. So when you go back to Exodus verse chapter 30, and thou shalt put it before the veil that is the ark of the testimony. Okay, again, it's, it's interesting to, to remember that it's the ark of the covenant is where these ten commandments, commandments would go into. And yes, they are ten commandments, but really it's the ark of the testimony. It's the testimony. Those ten things are who God is. In other words, you don't need to steal because I'm your provider. You don't need any other God because I'm your God. The whole thing is a covenant of his relationship with us. You don't need to murder because I'm the avenger of blood. You know, all of those, when you go down one by one, it's amazing people how the world just views them as these rules that the, that the Lord tries to put us under, but it's a coveted relationship of who he is for us. That's the point of it. That's why it's always referred to as the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. Where I will meet with thee, and Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, the lamps, he shall burn incense upon them. So the same thing. You're seeing all the way back in Exodus. They would burn, and the smoke would raise up. Okay, Psalms 141. Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice. When I cry unto thee, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So again, you see that link in Psalms that your prayers are like incense to the Lord. They are a sweet odor, a sweet aroma to him, and he loves it. He loves those prayers to come up before the throne because he, act, he acts out of them. Revelation 8, verse 5, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into, or really in the Greek, it's upon. It's not really... He didn't cast it into the earth. He cast it upon the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. I can imagine. So here we see before the trumpets are even blowing, the angel is casting something upon the earth that is supernatural. And the world starts to have all these supernatural events unfold. So in Leviticus 16 verse 12 and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. Okay, you also see this in the, in the prophets where an angel would go and get a coal and place it on the tip of the mouth of a prophet sometimes. It kind of the same, the same idiom here 
where these things are used before God's throne and to anoint those to speak his word. Number 16, and Moses said unto Aaron, take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. And so it was only turning to worshiping the Lord that would make those plagues go away. And you see this with the brazen serpent when Moses raises it up in the wilderness. For the congregation to be saved, all they had to do was look to that serpent that was on an altar. And really nowhere in the Old Testament does it explain why that weird remedy until you get to John chapter 3 and Jesus explains it to Nicodemus. That just as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. And that obviously is referring to the cross being raised up. And it's how we're saved, right? You have to look to the cross. You look to the Jesus, the one who died for you, to be saved. Just like they did with the brazen serpent. The serpent representing sin, bronze, the metal that could go through judgment or withstand fire. And it being nailed to a pole and raised up. So you get that same idiom of sin being judged on a pole and being raised up. And that's what really we have to look forward to in our redemption. If you're not saved, you have that to look forward to. So verse 6, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So I don't know if they're getting in a battle array or if they are just hanging out in heaven and they're in a linear order, some line. I don't know, but it's going to be amazing. They're going to march around with these trumpets preparing to sound and it's just like in Joshua at Jericho when they had the trumpets and they prepared it, they prepared to sound. And as soon as they sounded, the enemy's defenses came down. That's what's going to happen here. They're going to sound and all of the defenses of the world are going to start to crumble before them. So Revelation 8 verse 5, when you go back one, and the angel took the censer and filled it with fire altar and cast it into or upon the earth. And there were voices. These voices are the sounds of the trumpets preparing to blow. These voices are, are crying out. My guess is that these voices are some type of a warning to the people before these trumpets start to blow that, hey, if you're not in Jesus, you better get right now. Hurry up. Time is at hand. The judgment is coming. Judgment's already started to unleash, but it gets exponentially worse now. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 7 The first angel sounded, and there followed hell and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and the third part of trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. Okay, so here we start to see the judgment start to unfold through these trumpets, and every one of them links back to a judgment the Lord had on Egypt in Exodus, that whole model of God delivering his people Israel out of the world through these judgments is a model of, again, the Lord delivering his people Israel out of the world through these judgments. And so you go back to Exodus 9, verse 23, and Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground, which that would be a thing to see. And the Lord rained hell upon the land of Egypt. So there was hell and fire mingled with the hell, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So here, the hell is also mingled with fire, but it's also mingled with blood. It's almost like 
the Lord saying, you martyred all of my people, their blood is upon your hands, and here it is back to you. It's kind of that same concept. So we're seeing the first angel sound, and the judgments also, every one of them will line up with what happened in Egypt, but look at Psalms 18. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. So you see this modeled in Psalms. In Ezekiel 38, we talked about this all the way back at the Red Horse, uh, part two of the Red Horse a few months ago at this point. But the wars, prophetically, the wars in the Bible that are yet to happen, the war on Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 has this same thing. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Okay, so this great hail, where is it? What is it? Where is it coming from? And this is actually referenced in Job 38, when, again, one of my favorite discourses in the whole Bible, where God gives Job a science lesson on where were you when? And it's great. If you, if you haven't read Job 38 recently, go back and just read it and look at everything that the Lord questions him on. You know, where were you when I hung the earth on nothing? Did you, can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades? You know, he says in one of the verses, and not to get off on too much of a tangent, but when he asked that question, it's so deliberate because we now know the Pleiades are a grouping of stars. It's the only grouping of stars in our entire galaxy that are bound by gravity. And how did the Lord know that? How did Job know that? Well, the Lord obviously knew it because he hung them there. But every other star, its influence on another one is electromagnetic, not gravitational. They're too far apart for gravity to have an influence. But the Pleiades do. And we didn't discover that until, I don't remember the date now, is somewhere in the early 1900s, but 1950 or something. Anyway, the Lord says that explicitly in the oldest book of the Bible in Job, which is just incredible. And so if you ever want to take little nuggets like that and show your friends who don't believe in the Bible, just point them to things like that and tell them, hey, you, you go and study this and tell me how a book that was written 6,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, wrote something in that only modern science today is finding out. So look what he asked Job. Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hell? Now, we read a lot about hell that's coming upon the earth eventually, which I have reserved against the time of trouble. Okay, the Lord's using that phrase very deliberately because in Jeremiah, we know this is Jacob's trouble, and Jesus even calls it, it will be a time of trouble like the world has never seen nor will ever see again, against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. So once again, this is a reference to what is Jesus doing here? He is going to war and battle on behalf of his people. But again, before he does that, he calls his ambassadors home. We're his ambassadors. He calls us home. You have to exit your, your place in this world, your ambassadorship, you know, your consulate in a foreign country, you have to exit it, and I have to bring you home before I go to war against that nation. Kind of the same concept. So the first trumpet takes out a third of the trees and all green grass. So 
Uh, any of you in here that are customers of Brio Turf, everything you're doing right now is going to go to waste. Colby, I hate to break it to you, uh, but it is. I'm, I, you do awesome work. I love it. The grass looks phenomenal. But at some point, it will no longer be green grass. <laughs> it's a paid advertisement. If you, if you want to check out Brio Turf, go to brioturf.com maybe. I don't know. Something. It's great. But the first trumpet takes out a third of the tree. So think about everything the trees do for the earth and for us as people. You know, all of the food that comes from them, the fruit, the nuts, the animals feed on them, the whole cycle of life, right, through that. But a third of them get wiped out. So they're not processing carbon dioxide. They're not producing oxygen. They're not producing food for the animals, they're not giving off their fruit, because a third of them are gone in this first trumpet. All the green grass gets burnt up, and a lot of people we're going to see as we go through these, it's a third, a third, a third, a third. Again, Jesus as being the great mathematician, he's slowly pulling his hands back, and it could be all at once, but he's slowly giving the world space and time to repent, right? I'll take a little bit back, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, Let's see how long you can endure this before you get to your knees and you cry out to the lamb that paid for you. So the judgments of the thirds. In verse 8, And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. So when you see this, the the sea becoming blood, again, go back to Exodus in the plagues in Egypt, chapter 7. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying to Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all the pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. I love that the Lord puts that detail in it that he did it in the sight of Pharaoh because here there is no way the Antichrist does not see what's going on. He's doing it in his sight to show him, hey, I am the true God, you are not, and here's how you know. Watch me turn your water to blood. Let me, let me get rid of your green grass. Let me get rid of your trees. In Jeremiah 51, the Lord declares, Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain. Now, mountains oftentimes in the Bible are used as idioms for governments. So you see this a lot, especially in Daniel 2, which we'll look at in a minute. But mountains are oftentimes not just mountains. They also represent governments, depending on the context. So be sensitive to that. O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroys all the earth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've never run across a mountain that destroys the entire earth. But the Lord is against whatever mountain this is, and I'm thankful for it. And I'll stretch out mine hand upon thee and and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. So there is a stone cut without hands, a mountain, that the Lord will use ultimately to set up his kingdom. And we see this in Psalms 118. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. And this is obviously a prophecy of Jesus. And he references this in Matthew 21. Jesus saith unto them, 
Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, they rejected the stone cut without hands, the Jews. And, and the stone the builders, being the Jewish people, rejected is going to become the headstone of the corner. And the entire world and the government system will be built upon that cornerstone. And it all leads to the millennial reign of Christ, the mountain that fills the earth. And you see this in Daniel 2 and Isaiah 2. This mountain fills the earth during the millennial reign. In Isaiah chapter 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his way, in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this mountain that fills the whole world that the people look to and from every nation on earth will come to Jerusalem to bring gifts and offerings and worship the Lord. In Daniel chapter 2, if you've never studied the book of Daniel, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this metallic statue. It's gold, silver, brass, iron, and then iron mixed with clay. And the statue represents the kingdoms of the world, the Gentile kingdoms of the world, gold being Babylon, silver, Persia, uh, brass, Rome, or I'm sorry, Greece, Greece um, iron, Rome, and then iron mixed with clay is Rome in two phases at the very end in the Antichrist kingdom. And it's all interpreted for you. Daniel goes through that. But in the dream, there's a stone cut without hands that hits the very bottom of the statue, these two legs that are iron mixed with clay, Ten toes, which represent the ten kings that come up out of the Antichrist kingdom. And this iron mixed with clay, it's a kingdom that cannot stand together. It, can't, it cannot mold together the supernatural and the flesh. And so Jesus ultimately comes in and conquers it at Daniel 2, verse 35. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When you back up a couple of verses, it's a stone cut without hands that hits the mountain. And that links to Jesus, the stone cut without hands. Because when he comes back in Revelation 19, he destroys this final world kingdom that is iron mixed with clay that is the ruling antichrist kingdom so you see it here the stone that smotes that smites it though becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth and so it's this idiom again of a false mountain a false government and then the mountain that fills the whole earth so in verse 9 and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. So just imagine how the world would operate with less trees, no green grass. So what do livestock eat? A portion of the water cycle turned to blood, reduction in sea life, fewer shipping options, so you're not getting energy from other countries. You're not, you cannot imagine the chain reaction that's going to come out of this. We've already seen a lot with the, with the first six seals, 
the white horse, the Antichrist, who destroys many by peace, the famines, the wars of the red horse, the sicknesses of the green horse, the great earthquakes, all of that leading to this point. But now the Lord is starting to pull everything back that he provides. And so he's allowed all of these wars and earthquakes and the enemies attacking. And now that there's this Antichrist kingdom, God is pulling back. Okay, you want a world without me, you've got it. And a third of the water is becoming blood. I, I can't imagine being in parts of the world that you turn on your faucet and there's no clean water coming out. You know, imagine going to the well in Africa, you hike 10 miles to get a bucket of water and it's nothing but blood. You know, just imagine, try to put yourself in the shoes of these people where global trade is halting, supply chains are totally shut down, the livestock is getting obliterated and just dying everywhere because it has nothing to eat. It's going to be, it is no wonder that Jesus called it a time of trouble like the world has never seen before, nor will see again. So in verse 10, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp or a torch in the Greek, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Okay. In Revelation 8, I, in my opinion, we're getting a glimpse of Satan being cast out of heaven here. And we know he has access to it now because of Job. Okay, he's going to and from, talking to the Lord he goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There comes a point where he loses access to heaven. And you see that. You see Jesus reference that in Luke 10, 18. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In Isaiah 14, which is all about Lucifer, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, the Lord says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, the son of the morning? I how art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Okay, so you see that in Isaiah 14. Jesus references it in Luke 10. And this could be the moment we're seeing in Revelation 8. Uh, you need to take that to the Bible and search the scriptures daily yourselves and prove that to be so. But this could be it. In Revelation 9.1, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit to next week, but the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So whatever this star is that falls, the Lord changes to a personal pronoun and says to him is given. So it's some type of, of entity and stars are often used of angels. It's interesting, the Russian word for wormwood is Chernobyl. And when you think about the incident at Chernobyl when it made all the waters bitter because of this nuclear reaction of what's going on, this this nuclear plutonium and all this stuff going into the, the rivers, you know, it's still inhabited, uninhabitable today, that area. Nobody lives there. You can't go into it still. And it's just interesting that the Russian word for that is, is Chernobyl, is wormwood in English. And so here this wormwood, this star is falling to earth and it's going to make the waters bitter. Now, how does it make them bitter? I don't know. It could be some... 
It could be as, as much as something supernatural that we have no idea what's happening. It could be something nuclear. It could be uh, some organism as an asteroid from, from space that is carrying something on it. Who knows? Uh, thank the Lord that we don't have to wait and find out and try to figure out how to make these waters unbitter for us to drink. So, uh, Revelation 8, 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. There starts to be a pattern with these next judgments where uh, NASA did a study where if, the, if an asteroid a little bigger than a, the size of a football field were to hit the earth at a certain speed, the outfall of that happening lines up exactly with what the Lord is unpacking here. You know, this could be the debris going into the atmosphere and circling the earth where really the sun doesn't shine for a third part of the day. Really the moon, you can't see the stars and the, and the moon because of the, all the soot and the, and the debris in the atmosphere of the earth. There was a really interesting study they did on it. And when I was reading through it, it just reminded me so much of Revelation 8 of, the, of what unfolds because the word back a couple of verses for when he sees this great mountain burning with fire, the word really is asteroid. It's the word where we get asteroids. So this could be an asteroid also coming down to the earth. But you see this again referenced all the way back to Egypt in Exodus 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. You know, that darkness back in Egypt was a supernatural darkness. Remember, they were gnashing their teeth because they could feel the weight of this darkness. But yet, in the camp of Israel, they still had light in their villages. They still had light burning in their homes. Again, because Jesus is the light of the world, and he was with them, guarding them. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. In Joel 2, again, speaking of this time, the day of the Lord, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So even all the way back to Joel during this time of judgment, there is deliverance. If you call on the Lord, you see redemption still available. Isaiah 13, for the stars of heaven... And the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Now you see this in John 12. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. And see this reference of the enemies walking in the darkness put on them from the Lord. So in verse 13, And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets, the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. 
So, woe, woe, woe. You have these, these voices of the trumpets that are yet to sound. And the voices, again, back to the beginning, there were voices, thunderings, and lightnings. So I think that's the last verse of the chapter, if I remember right. But on this Independence Day, you know, we're celebrating our freedom in this nation. And it, as Ryan mentioned at the beginning, we do have freedom in Jesus. Praise God. We have freedom and liberty to walk in him. And it's amazing to me. And while I was praying about this for our land and our nation in this time, it is certainly a time in our nation right now that there is, as we've mentioned a couple times, we are at a pivotal point in our land where we're going to go one way or the other. And really the direction of our land is determined from Second Chronicles 7.14 by God's people. That is it. You know, the direction of our land does not depend on the fornicators, the drug addicts, the adulterers, the murderers, all these people. It doesn't depend on those that are not in him. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, the Lord says, If my people who are called by, not, by my name will, will pray, repent, turn from their wicked ways, uh, seek my face. You know, we do four and then God does three. God hears from heaven. He acts. He heals our land. And so the, the dependence of our land being healed is really on us. You know, if you are in the Lord, it's on us as the church, as his people. And... The Lord just gave me a word this morning as I was praying about the message and about Independence Day and what all it means for us as we walk in freedom. You know, speaking, I was praying for our nation, just like in Daniel chapter 9, when he goes on behalf of his people to pray. And the Lord asked me a rhetorical question. He said, Matt, from whom do you now seek independence? And the whom was our nation. Because God delivered this nation from a tyrannical government to give us freedom to praise and worship him. And now, here we are, hundreds of years later, and what are we doing? We are doing nothing but seeking independence from him. And so, while yes, we celebrate Independence Day here in this land as independence and celebrating the freedom he delivered us out of this tyrannical oversight of a government Today, it's amazing to me how in our very courtrooms and our, our House of Representatives, in the very offices, in the highest places of government, we seek independence from the one who delivered us to begin with. And that's not what we should be doing, obviously. We should be seeking dependence on the Lord, independence from man. And we have it backwards right now in this nation. And so if you're not in a state of praying for this land and praying for this nation, it's biblical. It's what God calls us to do. He calls us to pray for our leaders. You know, whether they are godly or ungodly, we are to pray for them. And so despite everything you see going on, I encourage each of you to lift up the leaders of our, leaders of our nation so that the Lord would give them discernment. He, they are not too far gone for him to deliver them, period. They aren't. But it's up to us to pray on their behalf and to intercede for them, for they know not where they're walking. You know, they know not what they do to a certain degree, but yet they continue to turn their back on the Lord. And so the world is seeking independence from Jesus. There is no doubt. And what you are seeing to start unfold in Revelation is him giving them their wish. You want independence from me, everything I provide Fine, I will slowly pull that back. 
And again, going back to the tabernacle, but look at everything that Jesus claims to be. You know, he is the light of the world. Well, we're seeing the darkness start to come upon the world here in the trumpet judgments. You know, he is the living water. We're starting to see the water turn to blood and, and be totally useless for the world right now in these judgments because he is stepping back. You know, you want a place without me, you're going to get it. And ultimately what that leads to is a place prepared for them eternally where they have no relationship with him, where there really will be no water, there will be no light, there will be no sustenance, there will be no blood because Jesus says the life is in the blood. And I love uh, this message, this guy, I don't even remember how I stumbled across him, but he, the Lord took him to 23 minutes in hell. If you've never seen this video, just look up, I think it's Bill, just look up Bill uh, Weiss maybe, or Weinchy, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce his name. But look him up, you can find it on YouTube, do the condensed version, just look up 23 minutes in hell and listen to his testimony. It's, it's amazing. I always took the Bible literally, and then after listening to his message, it made me take it even more literally, if that was possible. <laughs> because the Lord, you know, he starts out, he's got a great sense of humor, but he says, hey, most people get these visions of going to heaven and getting to see all these awesome things. The Lord gave me a vision to go to hell and see where the place is that he has prepared for people that reject him. And the, it has a very interesting reason why God gave him that vision and took him there. But check it out. If you've never watched it, he goes through biblically, verse by verse, what's not there that the Lord claims to be. And it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And if you want nothing to do with the Lord, there is a place prepared for you to have nothing to do with the Lord. That's the bottom line. And as a gentleman, he's not going to force his relationship on you. But like we've been reading in Psalms and other spots, Every single person's name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. It's just a matter of whether or not you accept and appropriate his righteousness, his holiness to you. If you don't, as he told Moses, I have to blot them out of the book because they can't be written anymore because they've rejected my gift for them to stay there. That's, that's the bottom line. And so if you reject him, you, have no, you want a place with nothing to do with him, you will get it. So at the very end here in Exodus 34, and he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did neither eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. And we've chosen, in my opinion, the least favorable name for these 10 things as commandments, because they are so much more than commandments. They are a covenant, a testimony of what, who God is for us as his people. He is your provision. You don't need to steal. You don't need to kill. You don't need to seek provision from other gods because I am your God. So every one of those, just line up all 10 of those and look at how he is a covenanted God and has a covenant with us as his people. So a call to action. You know, oftentimes in church, we, we have a call to pray for salvation if there's people that aren't saved. And what I love about New City Church and what God has called us to do is to take people that are in him to that next level of relationship with him. And so really what we're going to do is have two different calls here maybe. I don't know if we'll do this forever, but a call to action if you're in Jesus and a call to get into Jesus if you're not in him. <laughs> so two different things. 
But first, if you are in him, get alone with the Lord and seek to hear from him. And pray for this nation, pray for your children, pray for your grandchildren, that they would have a land of freedom, of prosperity, to also freely worship the Lord and to serve him. You know, the United States of America, for all of our faults, and there are many, we have been the centroid of sending the gospel out to the world for, for the last 50 years or more. We have been that place. The Lord does not want that to go away. He wants us to still be active in the kingdom and to send the, wor- the word out to the world, to send missionaries over the world, to, to, to have a place for a thriving church body to welcome people in. And unfortunately now we have more people coming into our nation as missionaries than we have going out. And it's really a sad state of affairs, but we can flip that. But it takes, again, it takes God's people. So, you know, what conversation have you been putting off that cannot wait any longer to get someone saved? The more people you get in the ark, the more that pendulum will start to shift more and more and more. So look for opportunities to share Jesus. Pray for the Holy Spirit to stir and open those doors and be sensitive to those around you, really. Be sensitive to them. Look, what, we're, what we are studying in Revelation, I would not wor- wish on anyone on earth. It is going to be awful. But we have time, as long as the Lord continues to tarry, we have time to get more people out of it. So be an active member of the body of Christ. The armchair quarterback or just sitting back and watching things happen, you know, those days uh, as a relationship with the Lord are no more. So if you're not saved, if, you're, if you are watching this online, you do not know the Lord, it's very simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. So you can make sure you have a one-way ticket out of here before all of this comes upon the earth. You know, he wants to welcome you home. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He knew you, he called you, he wrote your name there before you were ever knit in the womb. So take your place in the army of Christ. Let your sins be turned from crimson to to wool, to white as wool, that's it. So with that, we'll close in prayer. If you have any questions about salvation, about prayer, if you need something, you know, please reach out to us. As Ryan mentioned, we're here to serve the, the body, we're here to serve the community, and let's go to the Lord in the throne room and we'll close us out. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. God, I thank you for the independence that we do get to celebrate in this nation, but God, it has been so prosperous because while we are yet independent as a nation, we have remained dependent on you, and that is where we need to get back to, God, and we are praying for that dependency on you to return, where we look to you for life, for provision, for your covenant to be in our courthouses once again. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you again for taking us through the book of Revelation verse by verse. God, what an amazing book that you have preserved for us for almost 2,000 years now to culminate all things. And we just continue that you would teach us through this book. We lean on your anointing and your teaching for all things from 1 John 2.27. And God, be with the families that couldn't be here today, that are out traveling, celebrating this holiday with friends and family, wherever they may be, Lord. Be with them and bring bring them back safely to rejoin us next week, Lord. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you guys so much.